If you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. For those of you who have been listening over the past 30 or 35 years, you know that uh, I am uh, a movie buff. I like movies. And one of my favorite genres is westerns. And one of my favorite westerns of all time is a movie called The Magnificent Seven. Now, they did a remake in 2016, and I've seen it, but it's not as good as the original. The original was done in 1960, and it is a veritable list of men who will dominate movies for the next 30 years. Uh, Yul Brenner, Steve McQueen, uh, James Corbin, Charles Bronson, Robert Vaughn, Eli Wallach, all became huge stars. Now, the plot of the movie is this. There's this small village in Mexico, and there is an outlaw with his band of 40 men, and they come uh, every year at harvest time and take all of the crops that these people have grown through the year, essentially leaving them to starve. And they harass them and terrorize them in all kinds of ways. So a couple of the elders of the village uh, gather up money and they go north to hire people who will go against these outlaws and they find a man whose name is Chris played by played by Yul Brenner and then he collects the other six and they go to train these farmers to fight and to stand against the seven so the first time they face the outlaws. The outlaw is a man by the name of Calvera. Uh, he's played by Eli Wallach. Few, few cinema bad guys were as bad as Eli Wallach. So anyway, he, he faces them, and uh, uh, Wallach says, uh, Calvera says, that he's going to the hills for the winter, and he needs supplies. How is he going to get them? And I, I think it's Charles Bronson off the roof of one of the houses says, get a job and work for it. And Calvera responds, somehow, I don't think that you have solved my problem. And to that, Chris, played by Yul Brenner, says, solving your problems is not our, li- uh, not our line. And then the character, Vin, played by the uber-cool Steve McQueen, utters my favorite line of the whole movie. He says to Wallach and his men, we deal in lead, friend. Oh, that is classic, is it not? We deal in lead, friend. Let me tell you something. As Christians, we deal in words. Words are very, very important. We believe in the inspiration of Holy Scripture. We believe that Scripture is God-breathed. And we believe here at North Athens in a doctrine known as verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal means the words are inspired. Plenary means all the words are inspired. We take seriously the words of Jesus when tempted by Satan answered him, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. 
And we've been looking at some great words in our study of Romans. We've looked at words like gospel and faith and righteousness, and wrath, justification, propitiation, sin, and death. Now I want to look at just one word, the word grace. And it is a marvelous, magnificent word. Grace occurs five times in this passage. Three times in verses 15 through 17 that we are particularly looking at here. And then twice more in verses 20 and 21. In these verses, Paul says that grace is of God and that it comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ and that it is free, it is triumphant, and it is abounding. It is abounding and abundant. Grace is God's favor toward the undeserving. A lot of problems that people have with the doctrine of election and the doctrine of predestination is they start at the wrong place. They begin with the idea that everybody on earth deserves to be saved and everybody on earth deserves to hear the gospel. You didn't get that from the Bible. The Bible doesn't teach that. What the Bible teaches that is, is that no one deserves to be saved. And no one deserves to hear the gospel. So if you've heard the gospel, it is evidence of the grace of God. If you have believed the gospel, it is evidence of the grace of God. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great English Baptist preacher of the 19th century, said that grace is both the fountain and the stream of salvation. I believe it was Vance Havner who many years ago uh, created an acrostic from the word grace. He said grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Someone else has said that grace is favor shown to those who deserve no favor at all. As a matter of fact, we deserve the exact opposite. We deserve wrath. We deserve condemnation. We deserve eternal punishment. But we receive grace. Whenever we encounter a word like grace, I think it's profitable to go to hymnals and see how the word has been described in poetry by Christians of previous times. And if you look at the hymnal for the word grace, you will find an abundance of of material. In the hymnal I, I find that we sing of amazing grace, abounding grace, matchless grace, marvelous grace, infinite grace, pardoning grace. Some of these hymns are among the greatest literary treasures in the English language. The words of John Newton are undoubtedly some of the best known in the Baptist Church, at least, we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Theologians speak of common grace, saving grace, irresistible grace, persevering grace, and sovereign grace. Sovereign grace is one of the most powerful 
of all theological expressions to be found. Spurgeon again said of grace, What an abyss is the grace of God, who can measure its breadth, who can fathom its depth. Like all of the other attributes of God, grace is infinite. God is full of love, for God is love. God is full of goodness. As a matter of fact, the very name God uh, comes from an old word for good. Unbounded goodness and love enter into the very essence of the Godhead. It is because His mercy endures forever, because His faithfulness is great, that men are not destroyed. His compassions fail not, and sinners are brought to Him and forgiven. So there is that jubilation of grace. But I wonder, do you get, ex do you get excited about grace? It's been my experience that only a small percentage of people in the church really are excited about grace. Oh, they pay lip service to it. and They'll sing along when we sing Amazing Grace or when we sing of infinite, matchless, marvelous grace. But there they stop. And to tell you the truth, many people in the church find grace kind of boring. I mean, if you want to talk about the church's accounts, they're more than happy to spend hours talking about that. Or if you want to talk about what color of carpet to put down or what color of paint to put on the walls, they're, they're more than happy to talk about that. But they really don't get excited talking about grace. They just kind of, kind of find it boring. Not so much, I think it's... J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, he says that their conception is grace of grace is not so much wrong as it's just kind of non-existent. It just, it just doesn't really, you know, float their boat. They, they'd rather talk about something else. They'd rather go somewhere else. Sometimes I marvel at the, the seeming indifference that many professing Christians display toward this magnificent word and the doctrines that abound and issue from it. Is grace amazing to you? Do you find grace amazing? Do you ever sit and marvel that God has given you grace? Do you ever think of how lost you were and how saved you are and just want to shout? Just think glory to God. I mean, a person as lost as I was and now as saved as I am, and it's all by grace. Didn't Wasn't anything that I've done. Wasn't anything that I could do. Think of, the, think of the truths that issue forth from this doctrine of grace that we've looked at in the book of Romans. The, the, the moral depravity of man. Modern man is complacent about his grim spiritual condition and he assumes that God is uh, kind of blasé about it as well. The thought of 
himself as a creature fallen from God's image, a rebel against God's rule, as one guilty and unclean in God's sight and fit only for God's condemnation, doesn't enter into the head of modern man, doesn't enter into the head of many modern evangelicals. That's one reason we've spent so much time in examining what the Apostle says about man's sinful condition in the book of Romans. Grace will never amaze you until sin absolutely horrifies you. Not just my sin horrifying you, as it should, but your sin. You'll never see how amazing God's grace is until you see how sinful you are. How deserving of God's wrath you are. And then think of the doctrine of the retributive justice of God. Grace presupposes that God is a God of holiness, that he is a God of wrath. And were it not for grace that all men would be subject to that wrath. But the idea that retribution might be the moral law of God in his world that it might be an expression of his holy character seems to the modern man quite fantastic. He's not going to buy into that. But then think of the spiritual impotence of man. The truth is, we were completely powerless to change our spiritual status before God gave us grace and faith. And that truth is taught from the book of Genesis to Revelation. Man is dead in his trespasses and sins. Go back to Romans chapter 3 and look again. You know, we, in the last 40 years, there has risen a movement in the church in America particularly. It came from here called the seeker-sensitive movement. And it, it, its aim is uh, to, it, it says that people are seeking for God. And so you have to make the church a place as comfortable as possible for lost people. So you sing the music that lost people sing. And you, you talk in platitudes. You, you provide really what is a moral therapeutic deism, a kind of morality. A therapy that says Jesus wants you to have a good marriage, wants you to be wealthy, wants you to be healthy, wants you to have all the good things in life. And deism means that there is a God and he kind of created the world, but then he just backed off and let it go. And he, he has no real uh, voice in anything now. Those ideas have crept into the church. The problem is the Bible plainly tells us in Romans chapter 3 there's none good there's none that seeks after God you don't become a seeker until you're saved you don't become a seeker until God grants you his grace until God regenerates you and gives you the gift of faith and you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ so why in the world would you gear a worship service for people who can't worship? Makes no sense at all. And yet, you can build a huge following doing that. 
and men have proven it time and time and time again. But man is impotent. There's none good. There's none righteous. There's none who seeks after God. And apart from grace, they never will. But then think of the sovereign freedom of God. I said earlier, most people begin with the premise that God owes them grace and mercy. As J.I. Packer said, though the God of the Bible does not depend on his human creatures for his well-being, nor, now that we have sinned, is he bound to show us favor. Listen, God doesn't owe it to anyone to stop justice from taking its course. Not to anyone. Only when it is seen that what decides each man's eternal destiny is whether or not God resolves to save him from his sins, and that, that is a decision that God doesn't have to make in any single case, can you begin to grasp a biblical view of grace? God's not obligated to save anyone. God is not obligated to stop the course of justice, of man receiving exactly what he deserves. God doesn't have to stop that. If he does, then it's grace. Now then... Think of the operation of grace. All of these great truths have been spelled out for us in the book of Romans. So when we come to this point, having understood what has been taught earlier, we know what grace is and we are prepared to marvel at it. We are prepared to be amazed by it. Paul does it in this section. I, I want to... I want to set the subject of grace in the broadest context uh, of, of the fifth chapter of Romans, particularly here in these verses, 15 through 17. And I want you to think of, of grace in, in, a, in a couple of main categories. See, I've already told a lie. There's five categories. I thought if I said a couple, you'd be more comfortable. But anyway, five categories. Starting with sovereign grace. As soon as we see that grace is really apart from any possible merit in its object, then we understand that God is utterly sovereign in his choices. Most people probably think of God saving men and women, if they think of it at all, on the basis of some good that is in them, either seen or foreseen. That is, most people think that God waits to see the good that we are capable of performing and then saves us if that good is good enough. Or, if, if we insist with such people as the Bible teaches, that God has made a decision to save whom that he will in eternity past, before we were even created or had the opportunity to do anything good or bad, they answer that the decision then must have been made on what God foresees. 
not what he sees, but what he foresees. The argument is that God looks down through the corridors of time, and he sees everybody, and he chooses people for salvation based on the fact that he knows they will exercise faith and believe in him. So his basis of choice is preceded by their choice. He knows they will choose when they hear the gospel, and so he chooses them on that basis. But if the book of Romans is true, that we've already looked at, if men are as corrupt as the Bible describes, what possible good could God see in us that would cause him to choose us? The Bible says in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, every inclination of the thought of our heart is only evil all the time. Even faith must be created in us as an expression of God's sovereign grace. Another way of saying this is that grace is eternal. It is before all things. Or as Spurgeon said, grace is the source, the fountainhead of salvation. It is not dependent upon anything. The grace of God, like God himself, is before all things. And it is from grace that all good comes. And then think of searching grace. Again, man thinks of, of people seeking God. Everybody's seeking God. No, they're not. They're all running away from God. Actually, God comes seeking man. You remember the story in the first chapters of Genesis after Adam and Eve sinned? What happened? They went running trying to find God. No, they did not. They went and hid in the garden. And God came searching for them. God came calling Adam by name. Searching him out. Pursuing him to the grove of trees where he was hiding. And there he made great, the great promise of grace, the proton, proto-evangelum. He said a Messiah would come who would crush the head of the serpent, that he would be of the seed of the woman and restore the guilty pair to paradise. Or you remember uh, that self-righteous Pharisee uh, in Jerusalem by the name of Saul who came from Tarsus. You remember him, don't you? He was killing Christians. He was pulling them out of their houses and throwing them in jail. And all of a sudden he decided, bless God, the gospel's true. I'm going to run to Jesus. Oh no, excuse me. That's not, that's not what happened. Saul was on his way to Damascus with warrants to bring more Christians to the justice that he perceived was right when what happened? He was confronted by the resurrected Christ. Christ came looking for him. You've all heard the story of the missionary who went to China, found this Chinese fellow, and he said, excuse me, but he said, uh, have you found God? 
the Chinese fellow looked at him and said, no, he found me. He wasn't lost. I was. Did you find God? Nope. God found you. You weren't searching for God. You were going on your merry way to eternal hell. When God found you. Like Jesus said to Saul, why do you persecute me? God comes searching for us in grace. One of the marvelous things about growing as a Christian is that you increasingly see how black your heart is and how vile you truly were and are and how marvelous and how amazing grace truly is. But forgiving grace. Samuel Davies marveled at this. He wrote the refrain of the great hymn on grace and said, Who is a pardoning God like thee? Or who has grace so rich and free? What he was marveling at is the very core of salvation. Grace is the core of salvation. We talk about justification by faith alone. But that's really just a convenient theological shorthand. When we talk of justification by faith, we mean justification by the grace of God through faith. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And it is Scripture alone that tells us that. It is God who forgives. We're moved from the status of a condemned criminal awaiting eternal damnation. We're moved from that status to an heir who inherits all things. That is grace. That is why God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Grace alone. We didn't deserve it. We didn't merit it. We didn't earn it. We can't keep it. It's all of God. We could never, ever deserve grace. Not possible. If you could deserve it, then it wouldn't be grace. What we have earned is eternal condemnation. For the wages of sin is death. That's what we've earned. That's what we deserve. That's what we ought to get. That would be fair. Thank God we don't get what's fair. Then there's persevering grace. Christians speak of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And they explain rightly that those who have been saved persevere. Jesus said, he that endures to the end shall be saved. That's a sound emphasis. He wasn't saying that their endurance would save them, but rather that because they were saved, they would endure. They would persevere. Their Christian life is not passive on our part. We are active in it. We are to be growing. We're to be reading the scriptures. We're to be allowing the scriptures to mold us and shape us into the image of of Christ 
we're active. When God calls us, we come running. We go wherever he sends. But listen, we persevere because he perseveres. We endure to the end because God preserves us. It is absurd to think for a single moment that we can keep ourselves in grace for, for even a second. If it were not for God's preserving grace, all would be lost. We persevere because God holds on to us. He is able to keep us from falling. He is able to present us as trophies of Jesus' grace at the end. I, I, love, I love the hymn, Amazing Grace. I really do. And most people, most people like the fourth verse that we sing better than any of them. And I like that verse. You know, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. I do love that verse. But to tell you the truth, since I've been a Christian, I've never doubted that I was going to heaven, really. And so the third verse has really become more significant to me. The verse that says, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Disgrace has brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. Because there have been times that I don't I didn't think I could go on. That I didn't think I could keep going. But the grace of God, the grace that saved me, the amazing grace that saved a wretch like me has brought me this far and will take me home. Newton wrote a verse that we don't sing much anymore. I like it too. It says, The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine. But God who called me here below will be forever mine. Forever mine. God keeps me by His grace. He sustains me by His grace. Then there's saving grace. We usually think of saving grace only as being justified or pardoned from sin. But salvation encompasses much more than that. Grace refers to the past. For God has saved us from the penalty of sin in Christ. Grace refers to the present. For now we are being sanctified. God is saving us from the power of sin. And grace looks to the future because one day God will save us from the presence of sin. One day we will be glorified. One day we will enter into the presence of God himself and we will be forever free from sin. We will never again be tempted. We will never again have any temptation to do anything but obey God and to love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength.
if we have been saved entirely by grace, as we see that we have, that very fact should draw us closer to God. Most people are scared of grace. They really are. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher of the 20th century, said once, he, he says it in his commentary on Romans 5, to preachers, he says, if you preach grace the way it is presented in the Bible and someone doesn't accuse you of being an antinomian, you didn't preach it clearly enough. Antinomian means against the law. What do people say when you talk about grace? Oh, if I believed that, I'd just sin all I wanted to. Friend, I'll tell you something. I sin all I want to. Matter of fact, I sin a whole lot more. But they don't understand grace. If we have truly been saved by grace, then we have a love for God. We know that without Him we are lost. We know that we must never trust ourselves, not even for a second. Think of the words of the 18th century poet Robert Robinson who said, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave thy God, the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Secondly, here's my conclusion. If we truly believe grace is what the Bible says it is, we should revel in it. We should abound in it. We should glory in it. Every moment of our lives. Listen, we're a part of a blood-bought, blood-washed throne. We have been given eternal life. Our sins are forgiven. We are free from the wrath of God. We will never face condemnation. There is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. What a glorious thought. What a marvelous thought. What an amazing grace. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father and our God,